When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, check this out. This is about, um, it's about strongeloides. It's pretty interesting. Uh, this is from ncbi.nlm.nih.gov. You know it's serious with a URL like that. All right, this was uh, written in, let me get in a, a year for you guys here, 2014. Uh, well, it's published online 2014, August 14th. Um, the authors all have unpronounceable names, uh, which also makes you know that it's totally serious. Strongyloidiasis, an insight into its global prevalence and management by Senthosh Puthiyakunan Swapna Badu and Gong Chen. Uh, I apologize to all three authors, as well as parentheses, dot, 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 whatever the fuck that means. Um, there must be lots of authors, but I'm not going to hack up any more of their names. Uh, let's, let's get in here. Strongyloides stercoralis. I don't know if I'm saying that right either, but it seems right. 
An intestinal parasitic nematode. Nematodes are a type of worm, guys. Infects more than 100 million people worldwide. Strongyloids are unique in their ability to exist as free-living and auto-infective cycle. So they're famous the world over. Strongyloids, worms that are strongyloids. Uh, they can exist free-living. I mean, they don't need your ass like a virus. It can't really live that long without a host, right? Coronavirus, you know, it may persist lingering in the air for a little while. It may, you know, be on a few surfaces here and there if you're not cleaning and stuff. But it, it needs a host to live. Not strongyloids. No, no, no. No sir and ma'am and everything in between. They can be free-living worms. And, and when it says auto-infective cycle, that means that strongyloids, unlike many other worms that need maybe a second host or they need to mature in some way in the host body but then drop out of the body to find a mate and, you know, produce more offspring. Not, not good old strongyloids, this free-living worms. Once they get inside you, yeah, they kind of turn into like a hermaphrodite and don't, they don't need nobody. Mm-mm. Um, and they have lots of babies. So strongyloidiasis can occur without any symptoms or as a potentially fatal hyperinfection or disseminated infection. Disseminated meaning throughout the body, not localized. The most common risk factors for these complications being that the hyperinfection and the disseminated infection, the most common risk factors um, are immunosuppression caused by corticosteroids and infection with human T lymphotrophic virus or human immunodeficiency virus. So infection, as I have been saying for several days now, with human T lymphotropic virus or human immunodeficiency virus, that's HIV, y'all. Um, so that one or HTLV Maybe H, they're talking about HTLV1 and 2, more 1 even, I think, in, in this paper. But what about 3 and 4? That's what I want to know more about. That's what I hope we learn more about today. But we'll see. Uh, I haven't read this yet. Even though the diagnosis of strong strongyloidiasis is improved by advanced instrumentation techniques in isolated and complicated cases of hyperinfection or dissemination, efficient guidelines for screening the population in epidemiological surveys are lacking. So basically they're saying this fucking shit is hard to detect. We've improved our ability to, by our advanced instrumentation techniques, I don't know what those are, but um, it, it's efficient guidelines to how, how you screen the population, the community, in epidemiological surveys, that's lacking. One of the areas where strongyloides is endemic is the southeastern United States. Methodology and results. In this review, we have discussed various conventional methods for the diagnosis and management of this disease with an emphasis on recently developed molecular and serological methods that could be implemented to establish guidelines for precise diagnosis of infection in patients and screening in epidemiological surveys. A comprehensive analysis of various cases reported worldwide from different endemic and non-endemic foci, remember that just means focused regions, uh, of the disease for the last 40 years was evaluated in an effort to delineate the global prevalence of this disease. 
We also updated the current knowledge of the various clinical spectrum of this parasitic disease with an emphasis on newer molecular diagnostic methods, treatment, and management of cases in immunosuppressed patients. Thanks, guys. Appreciate that. Nobody else is doing it. I mean, not not in a way that's uh, applied to public health. I mean, I went to a dermatologist, showed her a picture of a, quote, bite that has a serpiginous, which means serpentine-like, which means a snake-like, uh, you know, protrusion from it. I mean, you never, it's called, uh, it's called uh, larva currens. That's the name of the rash caused by strongyloides. All right. Showed it to her and she goes, wow, you must have really been scratching that lady. Oh. Anyway, conclusion, strongyloidiasis is considered a neglected tropical disease and it's probably an underdiagnosed parasitic disease due to its low parasitic load and uncertain clinical symptoms. Increased infectivity rates in many developed countries and non-endemic regions nearing those in the most prevalent endemic regions of this parasite and the increasing transmission potential to immigrants, travelers, and immunosuppressed populations are indications for initiating an integrated approach towards prompt diagnosis and control of this parasitic disease. Introduction. So, Strongyloides stercoralis is one of the most common and globally distributed human pathogens of a clinical importance. It infects 30 to 100 million people worldwide worldwide. Strongyloides fuliborni, another species of the same genus, is found sporadically in Africa and Papua New Guinea. I don't know if I'm saying that right. Strongyloidiasis is endemic in Southeast Asia. That's India, y'all. Number three listeners to Momogaland. Latin America, Brazil, Chile, y'all are always up at the top. Sub-Saharan, Saharan Africa. I don't know why Africa. I get no love from Africa. Um, this is my shout out right now. Would love to hear from y'all, Africa, and parts of the Southeast United States. <sighs> hot Atlanta. It's not hot today. It's cold, y'all. Uh, unique characteristics of this nematode, this worm, this type of worm called a nematode, are its immense ability to persist and replicate within a host for decades while producing minimal or no symptoms and its potential to cause life-threatening infections by dissemination and hyperinfection in debilitated and immunocompromised patients. After its first report in 1876 from the feces of French soldiers with diarrhea who were returning from the old Indochina region, the disease was known for many years as Cochin China Diarrhea. <laughs> which describes the most common gastrointestinal manifestations such as epigastric pain and watery diarrhea of this parasitic infection. Don't know about y'all, but sometimes I get the long distance runs, okay? The marathons. And other times I'm constipated. TMI, but sorry, we're trying to share clinical features here. Anywho. It took more than a century to trace most of the basic biology, more than a century, y'all, more than a century, to trace most of the basic biology of this nematode and its extravagant ability to disseminate in host tissues, thereby leading to a spectrum of clinical complications. In this review, we analyzed the various case reports since 1970 from different parts of endemic and non-endemic foci, 
regions of S. stercoralis to delineate a comprehensive global survey of this parasitic infection. We have focused more details on the different diagnostic methods followed by the investigators in various case reports and discussed some recent novel methods in serological and molecular diagnosis towards the aim of establishing guidelines for diagnosis to decipher the global prevalence of this disease. Like I said yesterday, even the CDC study of Morgulon's as, as difficult as this freaking worm is to detect, as difficult as it is, and it is very difficult, and we will continue to learn more. It's, it's crazy how hard it is to find this fucking worm, you guys. Even in the CDC study of Morgulons, 16% of the people had strongyloides, okay? So, I mean, that, that, that's, that's in Northern California. That's not known to be an endemic region. This worm is far more prevalent throughout the world than what is thought currently. I, I can, I will put money on that. And I got paid finally, y'all, and it feels so good to have money in the bank. I made it. Anyway, um, but yeah, I put money on strongyloides being involved with Morgulons or some uh, related species within the same genus of, you know, if it's not Strongyloides stericoralis or however you say it, then it's Strongyloides morgulonis, okay? Um, anywho's. So, um, epidemiology and global prevalence of Strongyloidiasis. That's the disease, okay? Strongyloides is a worm. Strongyloidiasis, that's the disease it causes. So, strongyloidiasis is an emerging global infection that is underestimated in many countries. The prevalence of this disease has been on the increase, especially in the southern, especially in southern, eastern, and central Europe, the islands of the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, Latin America, and Sub-Saharan Africa, and the United States, yo! Dang. I mean, Trump's right. The problem with testing is that it makes the numbers go up. <laughs> All right, anyway. Um, in non-endemic regions of the world, it is mainly diagnosed in individuals who were prisoners during World War II and in immigrants from endemic countries. Males, people working with soil, such as coal mines and farms, people of white race... Patients with altered cellular immunity, especially those on long-term steroid therapy. Patients with lymphoma. Allograft transplant recipients. It means like a graft, uh, like you get a skin graft or something. You know, you transplant any kind of you know, organs, stuff like that. Travelers to areas of endemicity and other institutionalized individuals are at the greatest risk of acquiring this disease. Pay attention to that last part. Institutionalized individuals, what do you think they mean by that? They mean nuts in the nut house, y'all. Yeah, that's right. Strongyloides is known to be very prevalent. It, 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 it has been prevalently found in mental institutions. You know, the places where I work. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
we'll get in more into that later. But isn't this interesting? That list. Males, people working with soil. People of white race, patients with altered cellular immunity, especially those on long-term steroid therapy. Patients with lymphoma. Transplant recipients. Travelers to areas where it's prevalent. And people in mental institutions are at the greatest risk of acquiring this disease. And um, the nurses that work in mental institutions and the teachers that work in schools, y'all, this stuff is in poop. It loves poop. It eats poop. That is its favorite meal. If you're like, I'm about to kill you, worm. What do you want for your last meal? He'll be like, poop. And he'll be like, what do you want on your tombstone? And it'll be like, pepperoni. Just kidding. Um, anyway, am I going to die? <laughs> I'm being silly. I'm being silly. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, a strong association is seen between estrongyloidiasis and concurrent immunosuppressive diseases such as human T-cell lymphotrophic virus 1, human immunodeficiency virus HIV, and hematological malignancies. What does that mean? People with blood cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, multiple myeloma, people with blood cancers. What diseases do HTLV3 and 4 types cause? Is one of them morgulons? When combined with strongyloidiasis, I don't know, this theory seems more plausible to me than Lyme. All right, let me tell you something else. Let's go back to one of the Uh, unexpected potential foci or clusters, outbreaks that occurred in Northern California in 2000, what was it, six, seven? Um, That was the, that was the the group, the, the, the outbreak that was investigated by the CDC. Uh, They ended up not investigating the actual outbreak, but instead partnering with Kaiser Permanente to review their old medical records. Only the ones that had been digitized. And of course, you know, they were going through a process of digitizing all their medical records at the time. And um, they did this uh, uh, research study, if you want to call it that. Um, It was. It was a research study. It was just really, really poorly designed, executed one with uh, conflicts of interest. But um, significant ones. But um, the study that they did, which they ended up ultimately only pulling 31 people in to the Oakland Kaiser Center to actually examine them, you know, lay hands on them, eyes on them, all that good stuff that, you know, investigators, i.e. research doctors, in this case, do in a research study when you're trying to figure out what something is an emerging Infectious illness uh, that there was an outbreak of in Northern California. And don't forget that area because we're going to come back to that. Um, They did this study on 31 folks and they found that 16% of them had strongyloides, either currently or in the past. I think because I don't think that they did stool samples. I think they did a, a serology, so blood tests, you know, so they were looking for the antibodies to strongyloides, and they found them, uh, I believe, in 16%, eight people, 
And as we learn more about strongyloides, you will understand how fucking hard it is to detect these fuckers. We do not have good methods that are fast or easy or uh, reliable. Um, And that's just if you even think to do the test in the first place. Um, The CDC thought to do them because, you know, there's all these people reporting worms and shit. Sorry, I dropped my mic and getting excited, y'all. Yeah, but of course they're delusional. But yeah, they did actually think to do that. Didn't think to test people for HTLV types 1, 2, 3, or 4. That would have been an interesting, interesting uh, variable to throw into the mix. Wouldn't it have been? I would like to see a new study. (sighs) We're going to have a new study. I don't know if the CDC is going to do it, but um, it's going to get done. Anyway, um, strongyloides. So there's very little reliable, as they're saying in this paper, data, uh, epidemiological data. And epidemiology is, you know, in, in general, like the study of uh, what kind of diseases are out there, where are they, how prevalent are they, um, you know, why do they get spread around in this way that, you know, so there's very poor data uh, for the distribution of strongyloides. What we do know, however, is that um, when combined with certain uh, risk factors being, you know, one, HTLV1, HIV, uh, being in a mental institution, working in a mental institution, um, it, where you live, these things can cause strongyloides for some reason, which is usually a low viral load, or not, sorry, parasitic load, um, as they were saying. Remember that? They said, you know, it's hard to detect because usually they just kind of, they hang back. There's not a ton of them. But under some conditions... They can really proliferate out of control. What is it about, I mean, immunosuppression, sure, causes them to, you know, have a heyday out there in, in, out of your body and inside your body, um, which is interesting too, which would explain a lot going towards the Morgulans theory, because, you know, if you've got Morgulans, you know that it's not, they're not just in you. No, no, no. They're all around you. Um, everywhere you go, the car, the house, uh, yeah. So there's some kind of like superpower, like conferred on these worms by, I think in particular, a virus. I think that there's some kind of horizontal gene transfer going on. I'm not sure what it is, but, um, that's where we need the actual like experts to come in. And once the, epidemiological links could be established and then the clinical links like like I said if you just took that CDC study and you actually instead of studying a random fucking group of Kaiser patients like you instead studied the people that reported that they had this condition that seemed to be associated with like uh, parasites and worms (laughs) if you had actually taken those people and tested them for their uh, strongyloides and, and done really thorough tests. We're talking serial stool samples. That means like poop that you study 
over time, like week one poop, week two poop, week three. Do you know how many samples of poops, how many times it gets, uh, how many times you have to do it? I'm talking about digging through shit, looking for larvae. How many lab people out there, how much do people that work in a lab make? What are they, grad students or something? What can they make in the United States? Like $16 an hour, 18? I mean, it's tops. I, I, you know, I don't know. But I mean, seems like a shitty job, no pun intended. And you know, how thorough are you going to be when you're like digging through this shit with a microscope, all poop up in your face and you're just looking for worms in it? Um, you know, not to mention like the potential for infection because of exposure, you know, you gotta be careful. So not only are you not wanting to dig through this shit, you're also like, man, I hope I don't get these worms, you know? So it's just seven times, seven cereal stool samples before detection reaches 100% accuracy rate. Okay. That's how many times people got to dig through shit to say with certainty, like, yep, it's strongyloides. We found them. That's a lot of shit, man. The serology test, the blood test for the antibodies, can't tell you whether you have a current or a past infection, but they're still valuable for some screening purposes. Um, just like we screen blood donors, why not screen for these parasites? I don't know. Uh, not enough funding in public health, probably, you know, local and state, uh, as well as national public health programs. I mean, look at America. Come on. You got to take a look in the mirror and honestly say to yourselves, we thought we were the best and we have all these resources. We look at us 4% of the world's population, 20% of the cases. It's pretty dysfunctional. Um, Sad, very sad. And so is Morgulans. This pandemic of Morgulans is also pretty sad, too. It's a, it's a complete failure on the part of the people who we are supposed to trust and the people who we're paying via our tax dollars. Y'all, I only take home 73% of my income. The rest of it is going towards funding things that I believe in, like public education. Not having huge ass potholes in the road. I'm a big believer in that because I got a flat tire not too long ago in my caddy. I didn't appreciate it. Pothole. Um, you know, and also CDC and the Georgia State Department of Health and the Fulton County local uh, Department of Health. You know, I believe in these institutions, but these institutions in America have failed us. They ain't making that money. They're not earning it. They're just getting it and taking it and wasting it, misusing it. So that's upsetting. <laughs> and that's definitely something that we here in America can write to our Congress people about because you know, it might be time for another Morgulans disease campaign on the local and federal governments. And I know y'all are going to say, but there's a global pandemic called coronavirus out there right now. And they're busy with that. And they don't care. You know what? How do we know that 
coronavirus doesn't have something to do with morgulons. Like I said, I just read an article in the newspaper about a woman in Buffalo, 80, 80 years old. She's in the ICU with COVID. She's intubated. Her chances of survival are about 20%, the doctors say. Well, her son and daughter begged the ICU doctor to give her ivermectin. Yes, ivermectin, the anti-helminthic drug that cures uh, strongyloides, hopefully, sometimes, not always, <laughs> but it's the best thing we've got. And they said, give it to her. And finally, the ICU doctor gave her ivermectin. The woman in two days was off the ventilator. She was sitting up and, and though she was hoarse, she was able to speak to her son and daughter over the phone. They have not seen her. She is still in the hospital. They've not seen her since December 29th. Then when she is moved out of the ICU, she stepped down to a more, you know, uh, just a medical surgical unit. Then the doctors refuse to give her any more ivermectin when she starts kind of turning again for the worst. Well, son and daughter take it to court. And guess what? The judge rules in their favor and, and orders them, the doctor, to immediately provide her with the ivermectin. And he did. And guess what? She got better. She got better. She's doing well now. And um, her doctor says that she is now on the road to recovery. That's an interesting, interesting story, isn't it? So this is something that we need to speak out about, y'all. Because somebody, somebody should be looking at this. Somebody should be screening. Somebody should be doing some better epidemiological studies, some applied public health here, so that people like you and I, and uh, like that woman in Buffalo, New York, get the care they need and get it now. We're not waiting to die. We want it now. So let your Congress people know. I'm going to let mine know. We'll see. We'll see. Got to do something. All right. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.